uh, get involved in the activities around here. All right, Matthew chapter 16, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And we'll be reading from verse 15 down through verse 20. We will read the even verses together. I'll read the odd verses, uh, odd-numbered verses alone. The Bible says, beginning in verse 15, He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Verse 16 together. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. This morning we're going back to the basics, and the sermon title is this, The Mission of the Church. The Mission of the Church. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to understand the message today. And, Lord, this is a critical and vital sermon, both in this series and then to each of us as Christians, to understand what it is that you have commissioned us as a church to do, both corporately and then as individuals that make up that church. So, Lord, um, help, us, help us to see this sermon as a potential pivot point in our lives, and maybe even a pivot point as a church for growth, both individual growth and then, Lord, numerical growth as we seek to reach the community with the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. My goal this morning is to keep my introductory thoughts very short this morning. I have a whole lot to say in the body of the sermon. Um, every successful organization has a missions statement. Mission statement. And uh, it has a mission it is seeking to accomplish. An end game in mind that it's trying very hard to work toward. Now, every church must have the same thing. We don't have a mission. We don't have a goal in mind, a vision. Uh, then we will not, we have, we, we will not have a purpose for existing. A church with no vision or a church with no mission that it is actively trying to accomplish is a church that is dying. A church that is dying. Many, many churches in this community are shriveling up and dying. And you say, oh, that's because the world is becoming more wicked. And while that might play a contributing factor, a much larger factor to that is, is that those churches lack a leader and lack people that have a mission and a vision and that they are not actively growing and pursuing. Jesus is the author and purchaser of the church. And since he is... Uh, uh, it is he that lays out the mission for the church. And it is our responsibility to know what Jesus' mission for us is and then to go forth and do it. So what is the mission of the church? If I could give a mission statement of sorts. The mission of the church is to teach truth. It is to grow the church and those who make up the church. And it is to see people saved and set free from Satan's lies. 
My proposition this morning is that in order for our church to fulfill this mission, we must have the participation. We must have the participation of each one who makes up the church. Each one of us must stop playing games with God. We must stop treating church like a country club or a social hangout. We must start seeing church as a place where we both sharpen our spiritual tools and do our best to reach the lost, dying, and hurting world around us. So this morning, we're going to jump in and look at three visions, three mission statements that Christ has laid out for the church here in Matthew 16. Point number one is already on the screen there. If you're taking notes, number one, a mission to teach truth. A mission to teach truth. Now, uh, very fascinating here, uh, uh, the lead up to the comment about thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The comments leading up to this have to do with them understanding what and who is truth. Letter A, notice, the person of truth. Letter A, the person of truth. Look back at verse number 13 of Matthew 16. Back up with me to verse number 13. It says there, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? So Jesus, the prophet, has come along and he has selected 12 men to follow him and to, uh, that he is going to disciple and train and teach. And they have watched Jesus as he has uh, uh, touched the eyes of the blind and give them sight, the ears of the deaf and give them hearing. Uh, he's touched uh, those who are uh, paralyzed and given them strength in their legs to walk. And they've watched as he has uh, uh, fed multitudes. They've watched. He's done all kinds of miracles. They've watched as he's wowed the crowd with his understanding and teaching of Bible doctrine and how that he's so different than the Pharisees. And uh, uh, the disciples are beginning to understand this is not just a, a good man. This is a prophet. And this is not just a prophet. This might be something even greater. This might be the promised Messiah of old. This might be the Old Testament's promise of the Messiah that will come and, and give uh, a freedom to those who are captive. And so Jesus now is conversing with his disciples and he says to them in that small group, he says, he asks them this question, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? There was some back and forth uh, amongst the disciples. And then Jesus asks them, whom do you say that I am? Or whom do ye, all of you say that I am? Peter did not hesitate. Peter knew who Jesus was, and he was ready to give the answer. Look at verse 16. And Peter, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto, me, unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, you go down to verse 19 and you see that Jesus told Peter that he's going to give to him the keys to the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, really quick explanation of that. Really, really quick. The keys of the kingdom does not mean that Peter stands at the front gate of heaven and lets people in. All right. There's a lot of really bad jokes about that. And to be honest, they're irreverent. Okay. What that means is that Peter was going to be the one to stand up and open the, open the kingdom to 3,000 plus souls at Pentecost. 
And then he was going to be one to open the kingdom to uh, the Gentiles as he witnessed to Cornelius there. And the Holy Ghost came down upon uh, Cornelius and he opened up uh, the concept of the grace era, the grace dispensation, the grace uh, 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 church that would come from it to both the Jews and the Gentiles. God chose Peter to do those things. God chose Peter as a large part of the foundation of the church, Jesus being the chief cornerstone, as we looked at last week. God chose Peter to do that in part because Peter was the first one to the table to both understand and know that it is Jesus who is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. You see, the church needs to understand exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do. Many, many, many churches today, or so-called churches, they call themselves churches, but they're not a called-out assembly of true believers. They're more like religious institutions. They're not real churches because they don't have a thorough and functioning understanding of who Jesus was. Now, I really want you to understand this this morning. God chose Peter to stand up at Pentecost and preach because Peter, uh, the first leader of the first church, he understood exactly who Jesus was and what he came to do. He was an understanding of the person of truth. What does John 14, 6 tell us? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so for a church to complete its mission statement, it must understand who is that person who epitomizes truth. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of churches that teach that Jesus is a way. They have it. One of many ways. I remember, uh, I've had this occasion many times, and one in particular stands out. I've talked to many people, one guy in particular I was talking to on the street corner in Chicago several years ago, and I asked him how he knew he was going to heaven, and he pointed at a large tree. He said, you see that tree over there? He said, uh, you see how many branches and twigs and limbs there are? He said, that's like heaven. You, you find your way, you find your religion, you find your path, and you follow that down, and eventually they all lead to the same trunk. That's how you get to heaven. As long as you're well-meaning and well-intended, and you, you're trying your hardest, and you're doing your best, and you're following the religious system put in front of you, that's how you get to heaven. And my friend, that can't be further from the truth. Jesus said that He is the only way to heaven, and no man comes unto the Father but by Him. And for a church to truly fulfill its mission, it must teach, it must preach, it must share that Jesus is the way. The way. Jesus was not just a good man. He was not just another one of the prophets. He was God walking amongst man as a man himself. He is the prophet of all prophets. He came to die on the cross for my sins and for your sins and for the sins of all of humanity so that they could be redeemed and brought back to a perfect relationship with God in heaven. My friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I'm here today to tell you that Jesus is the person of truth. And the only way to heaven is through His great sacrifice for you. What is the first mission of the church? It's to teach truth. It is to teach the person of truth. It is to teach, let her be, the precepts of truth. The precepts of truth. Now, Jesus is the living Word of God. Living Word of God. John 14, or rather John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the, capital W, proper noun, Word. 
the Word. That's a name. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word was God. The same as in the beginning with God. All things are made by Him. Without Him were not anything made that was made. So Jesus was in the beginning with God. Jesus was part of creation. One of Jesus' names is the Word. The Word. So Jesus is the living Word. And if you need further proof of that, you go down to verse 14 of John chapter 1. And the Bible tells us that uh, uh, the Word, capital W, Word, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we bailed his glory as of the only begotten. So Jesus is the living word. The Holy Bible I hold in my hand is the written word. The written word. Holy Bible, book divine, you're the one for me. This is the book. This is the book that teaches me the precepts. I'm so glad that I have a personal relationship with the living word as I I know his saving grace. But I also have a personal relationship with the written word and the precepts that are inside of it. Take your Bibles over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you're in the book of Matthew, it's to your right there. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, in verse 2, if you see First and Second Thessalonians, it's the next books after that. If you've gotten to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Second Timothy chapter number 4. And I want to show you as you're turning here, here's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, the, the church planter and apostle Paul is telling his pastor trainee Timothy, hey, while you're, while you're leading that church that you're in charge of, There is a way I want you to lead the church. There is a mission of truth you are to accomplish. I take the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. We call those the pastoral epistles. They're epistles or short letters or God's divine word written from a apostle Paul from God through the apostle Paul to pastors of local churches. I I title these, in my mind, First Richard and Second Richard. Because I am to do this as I lead the church. You understand? This is written to Timothy, but I'm to lead the church here the same way Timothy was instructed to lead the church there. Now, with that in mind, look at chapter 4, verse 2. Okay? Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Preach the living Word. Preach the written Word. Be instant in season. Out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Now, pastor trainee was told, preach the word. Now, notice here, he did not tell Timothy, he did not say, preach your opinions. That's not what it says. Boy, there are many religious institutions today that has a man that's standing up and he is simply preaching his opinion. That is not my job. That is not my job. If my opinions are steeped in Bible principle and Bible thought and the spirit of the Word of God, that's one thing. But a lot of guys just get up and for 45 minutes they rant and rave about some political uh, item or they rant and rave about their opinion. It does not say preach your opinion. It does not say preach your hobby horses or get up on your soapbox. It does not say uh, uh, tell funny stories. It does not say entertain the crowd and be inspirational. It does not say get up and give a TED Talk and throw a Bible verse in there. That's not what it says it says preach the word preach the word it says to hold up the precepts of the bible high and uh, and to hold those up and to share them and to give them in a way that are uh, 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 applicable to your lives 
Now, notice there, it's telling the pastor here that he is to preach the precepts of the Bible. He is to do it in season and out of season. Now, what does that mean? That means he's to do it when it's popular, and he's to do it when it isn't popular. You know, I love preaching sermons like, Jesus loves you. That's an easy sermon to preach. Sometimes I preach on topics that aren't so easy to preach on. Sometimes I preach on topics. I'm not going to win a popularity contest preaching that sermon. But I am to preach the Word of God as it is. Every corner. Whether it fits the culture or not. Whether the church is in compliance with it as a whole or not. I'm to do it in season. I'm to do it out of season. What is the mission of the church? It's to preach truth. Notice the Bible says there that uh, uh, Paul is telling the pastor in training, Timothy, that with the preaching of the word, he is to reprove and rebuke. Reprove and rebuke. Those of you that are military, you show up at boot camp. The very first thing they tell you is it's not I anymore, it's we. We're a team. They're not quite that nice about it, are they? It's not I, it's we. Part it. You scum! <laughs> I would make a terrible drill instructor. But their horses are, their voices are hoarse because they've been yelling for 20 years. And man, you, you get down to the end of that boot camp, and the individual's been broken down because of the reproving, the cutting away of the individuality, the teaching of the team effort, the rebuking, and sometimes the, the, the petty rebuking that's just done to see how you respond. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not here to get in your face and go overboard on purpose, just to be nasty for the sake of being nasty, but the Bible says that the job of the pastor is at times to step on toes and to call out sin and to call wrongdoing and sin, wrongdoing and sin. He's a reprove and rebuke. Now, I do that corporately, and uh, there are times where it's my job to pull a person in the office and do it privately. I don't enjoy that part at all, but uh, where sin is sin and I see it, it's my job to call it out and to help and to do it with the right spirit. But notice there it also says, uh, look, look there again at the verse, uh, preach the word, be in season, out of season, uh, reprove, rebuke, and the next word there is exhort. And that word exhort means to encourage, means to build up, means to help someone who's down. It means to catch a tear on the proverbial shoulder. It means to go find that lost sheep who's lost his way and struggling. Bring them back into the fold. We're to do this with the Word of God. Paul tells Timothy, he says, Pastor Timothy, you're to do that with a long-suffering spirit and you're to do that with Bible doctrine. You look at the end of the verse. Preach the Word. Preach the truth. Today, many people are looking for a church that puts on a show and makes them feel good. Not for a church that teaches and preaches truth. The music in those churches oftentimes is driven by emotion instead of the Holy Spirit. And the little sermonette, the dinky little sermonette given by the man who's dressed like he's going to the beach... 
is simply nothing more than inspirational talk and a pat on the back that you can make it one more week. Now, I want to quickly do this here, but let me give you some thoughts on what truth is. I'm just going to read over these and make very, very little comment. First thing, and I've shared this in here before, but this is a longer list. Truth is discovered, not invented. It exists independent of anyone's knowledge of it. Truth is discovered, not invented. It exists independent of anyone's knowledge of it. You know, gravity was around before the apple hit Isaac Newton in the head. Gravity did not begin when the apple hit Isaac Newton in the head. Gravity was around when God first created the earth. And it will always be around. Truth is not, truth was not invented by Isaac Newton. It was discovered. It was discovered. And just like that, spiritual truths that are present today have always been and always will be as long as God has the planet Earth here. Here's another thought on truth. Truth is transcultural. Truth is transcultural. If something is true, it is true for all people in all places at all times. Two plus two equals four. Whether you speak Spanish, English, Chinese, Italian, French, uh, uh, Aramaic, whatever language you speak, two apples plus two apples equals four apples. Whether that's today or whether that's 4,000 years ago, two plus two equals four. And if you are a math theorist and you have some way of showing how that sometimes two plus two doesn't equal four, then keep it to yourself. Amen. In a practical sense, truth is transcultural. Here's another one. Truth is unchanging even though our beliefs about truth change. Truth is unchanging even though our beliefs about truth change. Um, You know what they said prior to 1492? They said the earth is flat. Right? That's what everybody believed. Now... Columbus came along and said, no, the Bible says that the earth is round, and I'm going to prove it. And I'm not going to fall off the edge of the earth. And so Columbus sailed, and he sailed, and he sailed, and he sailed to find this land for me and you, right, as the old song says. And he found out that, no, indeed, the earth is not flat. And so then for hundreds and hundreds of years, now people believe the earth is round, and now people are beginning to believe the earth is flat again. Whether or not people's beliefs changed... The earth has not changed. You know why? Because people's beliefs do not dictate truth. Truth does not change based on one's belief. Let me give you another thought about truth here. A personal belief cannot change truth no matter how sincerely it is held. A personal belief cannot change truth no matter how sincerely it is held. Just because you believe that you saw an angel at the edge of your bed at 2 a.m. and uh, that's taking you to heaven, just because you believe that and you sincerely believe that, if it isn't truth, it isn't truth. It isn't truth. You say, well, I know people that, boy, they're sincere, so surely God's going to let them in heaven because they're sincere. And I'm here to tell you that sincerity has gotten nobody into heaven. Just because you hold to a belief, if it isn't true, then that makes it a a, a falsehood. And that means that you have been duped and deceived. So a personal belief uh, cannot change truth no matter how sincerely you say. Let me give you one more here. Truth is not affected by the attitude of the one professing it. 
Truth is not affected by the attitude of one professing it. Here's what I'm saying. Arrogance does not make truth false, and humility does not make error true. Arrogance does not make truth false, and humility does not make error true. Uh, just because you're humble about being wrong doesn't make, it, doesn't make you right. And just because someone has a cocky attitude and they're waving their truth in your face, uh, waving truth in your face in a way that's uh, 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 not nice and filled with pride, their pride is wrong, but if their truth is right, the truth is right. This is exactly why the Bible, and here's why I said all that. This is exactly why the Bible can be two to 4,000 years old and it still be relevant today. Because truth is relevant across all spectrum of time, across all cultures. No matter what technology brings our way, truth is always relevant. Truth will always be relevant. Let her see, notice the practicality of truth. The practicality of truth. I, I read this verse last week. I want to emphasize a different part of it this week. It says in Jeremiah 3.15, And I will give you pastors according to my heart, listen to this, which shall feed you, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Now, I, I got to tell you, I find it fascinating how relevant God's word is for us today. I find it fascinating. Um, but, can I shoot straight with you this morning? Many churches are not making God's word practical. You walk out of there and you feel smarter, but you really can't apply it now to, to anything going on in your life. Why is it that you come to White Oak Baptist Church? I hope in part it is because you find the teaching and preaching of God's word, both here and in this, your Sunday school classes, that you find the teaching and preaching of God's word practical for your everyday living. That's what we work to do. That's why we took a month and a half and taught on the Christian home. Because the Bible talks about the Christian home. That's why we talk about Christian dating that pleases the Lord, like we talked about last week. Because the Bible has a lot to say about things that are practical in today's realm and in today's time. Why do we strive to do that here? Because God's Word is truth. And truth is always relevant. And truth is always Practical. The Lord calls a man of God to feed the word of God to the church of God in a way that is applicable and practical to daily living and to God. So what is the mission of the church? It is to teach truth. Number two, notice the a mission to build up believers, to build up believers. Look with me at Matthew chapter 16, back where we started this morning and verse number 18, Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18. Now, Peter comes out and says, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And look at verse 18 with me. It says, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, I've given lengthy, thorough explanations of the thou art Peter thing before. I'm not going to do that this morning. I will say this, uh, that a lot of people get hung up on the thou art Peter line. Especially Catholics. They really get hung up on that. God does not want the emphasis on Peter. Alright? Where should the emphasis in this church be put? It says there, I will build my church. So who's going to do the building? Jesus. Not Peter. Jesus. And whose church is it? He says, I will build my church. My church. So Jesus is going to build it, and it's his church. It doesn't really matter what role Peter played in it. Because he owns the church, and he's going to grow it. 
Now, Peter's come and gone. And by the way, if you turn over to First and Second Peter, we're not going to do it today. But if you turn over to First and Second Peter, Peter doesn't call himself the author of the church. Peter calls himself a servant. That's how Peter saw himself. Um, so uh, this is his church, and he's going to build it. Let me quickly, I'm going to run through this point quickly here. Let me give you an A, B, and a C and talk about uh, uh, what this means about him building up the church. Letter A, notice a global growth. A global growth. Early on in the book of Acts and all throughout the New Testament, you see individual churches popping up all over the known world. There have been many attempts to squelch Christianity. In fact, in the USSR, the Soviet Union, at one point they proclaimed that they had squelched Christianity out of Russia. Only to find out that no, uh, the harder they persecuted it, the more underground churches kept popping up. Satan has used many tactics. But when the church begins to die or to leave one part of the globe, it begins to mass produce in another part. Satan persecuted the church at Jerusalem. What happened? Churches popped up all over Samaria. Then the churches in Samaria, specifically Antioch, began to send out uh, missionaries who started churches all over Asia Minor and modern-day Europe. In fact, most of us here today that are saved, we're saved as a direct result of, of, of the work, uh, the hard work of the Apostle Paul and the hard work of Barnabas and men like Saul and John Mark, who went all over the known uh, 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 earth and planted churches amongst the Gentiles and our salvation has come through a long lineage of folks who have shared and shared and shared. And, and, and what they have found is Satan has found is that the more he persecutes the church or apostatizes the church, the more it begins to pop up and grow in other places. Now, just in the Baptist world alone, and the Baptists don't count for all the saved people. There are plenty of people that are saved that are part of other uh, denominations or non-denominations. But just in the Baptist world alone, in the year 2009, there were an estimated 40 million members of Baptist churches worldwide. 40 million. Right now, um, Christianity is beginning to take a nosedive in the U.S. and has been for a couple of decades now. But revival is breaking out in places like Burma. Places like Thailand. I see Sally, they just got back from Thailand. I talked to Bob on the phone and all kinds of reports about churches just popping up all over the place. The Philippines has been having mass revivals and churches growing and people getting saved. And the Philippines are beginning to send missionaries out to other parts of the globe. Why is it that the church has survived much persecution and apostasy or false teaching? Because Jesus Christ said that he would build the church and nothing would be able to stop it. A mission to build up believers, a global growth. Let's look at letter B, a local growth. A local growth. Quickly, uh, hold your place in Matthew. Turn over to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. God's intent for each believer, God's intent for me and God's intent for you, is that we adjoin ourselves to a local autonomous, that means self-governing, church. Now, you are part of a local, self-governing church. Over and over and over again, you find local churches in the New Testament and people who have gathered there and worshiped there and grow there. Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 1. It says, There unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. So this is a church in the city of Ephesus, right? Look down at verse 8. 
It says, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was a city. So there's a church in Smyrna, a local church in Smyrna. Look down at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos. That's a city, uh, the church in Pergamos. Look at verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira. That's a city uh, uh, in Thyatira. So these are, and there are seven total churches that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. These are individual local churches. God uh, concerns himself with the growth, yes, of the global uh, uh, church as a whole. And when I say global church, I don't mean universal church. I mean globally, God is concerned about all local churches. And seeing that churches begin to uh, continue to get plant and grow and boom and, and build and that there is uh, uh, some sort of people in all areas of the globe that are concerning themselves with local church. But individually, or rather specifically on a micro level, God cares about what's going on here at White Oak Baptist Church. He cares. This matters to him. Listen, God, yes, while he's paying attention to what goes on in Thailand and the Philippines and Burma and California and Colorado and Indiana, he cares about what's going on right now, this morning at White Oak Baptist Church. He wants to see this church grow and thrive and prosper. He's concerned about the building up of the believers here in the Stratford, Connecticut area. Letter C, we see an individual growth. An individual growth. Back in verse 18 of Matthew 16, it says there, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build, those last two words, or those next two words, my church. Who is the church? It's me and you. It's me and you. You're a member here. You're a faithful attendee here. You make up White Oak Baptist Church. Jesus said he would build his church. Yes, that means globally. He, he, Jesus said here he would build his church. Yes, that means locally. Why don't we have the church locally? As long as we're doing the precepts laid out in his word for church growth, he's going to grow his church. But that also means me. And that means you. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing by being here at church. God wants you to grow. How do we grow corporately as a church? The individuals have to grow. I was a basketball coach of a varsity girls team for three years. The very first year I coached that team, we lost every game we played. There was a, we were a varsity girls. There was an A league and a B league. So um, uh, the A league was so much better than the B league. And if you watch girls basketball, especially on the college level, you know that you have two or three really elite schools and everyone else stinks, right? That's pretty much how it is. And so that's how it was in our league. We had two or three schools in our uh, league that were just so much better than everybody else, and then everyone else stunk. We were defeated in the B League. We didn't win a single game the first year I coached in the B League of the varsity. And I remember after the last game of the season, we got blown out, and we were sitting in a pizza hut, and uh, we're eating pizza, and I looked at those girls. It was the end of the season, last game, and I said to them, I said, listen, if we're going to be better as a team, you all have to get better individually. All off-season long, outside of going to church, being faithful to youth group, and walking with the Lord, if you want to have a better team next year, you need to have a basketball in your hand. You either need to have a Bible in your hand or a basketball in your hand. 
And you need to play, 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 play. And if the off season, you'll all get better individually, then together we'll be a much better team. The season is meant to grow us as a team. We get better working as a team. The off seasons where you get out and you play street ball and you get together and you, you work on your individual games. And I'm, I'm here to tell you today that if we're going to be better as a church than each individual that attends the church, you've got to up your game. You've got to work at this. You've got to allow God to grow you one-on-one as you walk with Him in your in your personal devotions. And if you'll allow God to build you individually, then together as a church, we will grow. We see here a, a global growth, a, a, a local growth, and an individual growth. Let me move on to number three, mission statement number three. Notice a, minish, a mission to salvage sinners. A mission to salvage sinners. Look back at verse 18 there. It says, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. Then he gives us a peculiar phrase, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let me just say this before I get into the subpoints this morning. I believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. Jesus was not using an analogy here. He was not giving conjecture. He was talking about a literal place. A real place. My friends, hell is not just some word we throw around in loose language. Hell is not some place we wish our worst enemies to go to. Hell is a place that is real. Hell is a place that people who reject Jesus spend eternity. Whether they rejected Him on purpose or not. Letter A, notice hell's fence. Hell's fence. Why do you put a fence around something? One of two reasons. You're either trying to keep people in, or you're trying to keep people out. Maybe sometimes both. But you put a fence around something for one reason. Think about a fence around a graveyard. The purpose of a fence around a graveyard is to keep people out. They don't need to worry about keeping people in. They're not going anywhere. The Bible talks about here in verse 18, the gates of hell. Where there are gates, there's a fence. Why is there a fence around hell? Is the fence there to keep people out? No. No. Satan wants to take as many people to hell as possible. The fence that's around hell is to keep people in. Because once you get in, you want very badly to get out. The fence is there to keep people from getting out. My friends, the Bible tells us that hell is a real place. Jesus spoke twice as much about hell than he did about heaven. The Bible tells us that hell is a place where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. There are worms that crawl in and out of the eye sockets and the ear sockets and the noses of the people that are falling through them, falling through there. Hell is a place of utter darkness. Hell is a place of thirst. Hell is a place of torment. 
Hell is a place of finality and eternity. Hell is a place where the wrath of God is poured out on those who have died in their unbelief, who have rejected the cross, who have chosen to die in their sin and not been redeemed. Hell is a place where people go and they are punished by the wrath of God for all of eternity. Hell is a place that is greatly populated. Hell is a place that people are slipping into and falling into at this very moment. They're, they're giving up their last breath on here, on earth and they're leaving behind riches and they're leaving behind fame and they're leaving behind family and they're leaving behind what they think is a tough spot and they're entering great pain and great torment and they'll never get away from it. Oh, many people joke about going to hell and having a party there, but there is no party in hell. And everyone there wishes and wants that nobody else would come. Everybody in hell wishes and wants that everybody around them uh, could hear the truth about Jesus, the Son of God, who can wash away their sins and keep them from there. No matter who you are, no matter what enemy you have, once you go to hell, you would not wish hell on your worst enemy. You would not want them to come there. Hell is a place that people fall through and they're constantly reminded about the opportunities they had at the gospel and how they shunned those and rejected those and want nothing to do with it. I think about a time a few years back I was out doing door hanging for an Easter service. We were leaving door hangers on people's door and, and inviting them to, to come and hear the gospel. And we went to put one on a door and the man said, I don't want your garbage on my door. And he said, sir, it's just an invitation to church. He said, keep it and never come back again. And the man I was with looked at me and said, one day when he, if he ends up in hell, one day he's going to remember the rejection of an invitation that would have saved his soul. Hell is a place of great torment, both physically, emotionally, and mentally. And hell, my friend, today is a real place. Hell is a place where I've had family die and go. Hell is a place where I have family members today that are alive and they're headed there. Hell is a place I have friends that reject the gospel and they're going there. Hell is a place uh, where you all here today have friends and family and they're heading there. And it ought to break our hearts. Let her be noticed Satan's falsehood. Satan's falsehood. The term gates of hell also refers to Satan's assault on humanity in the church. Satan's vitriol. Satan's hatred. In that hatred and vitriol, he's doing everything he can to take as many people to hell with him as possible. Listen, Satan knows the Bible better than me and you. He knows the end. He knows the end game. He knows that for all of eternity, the Bible tells him that he is going to spend eternity uh, uh, inside of God's wrath and hatred in that place called hell. He'll be thrown in the lowest hell to suffer the most. He knows that. And he hates God. He hates God's humanity. And so he uses every falsehood possible to snatch up as many souls as he can and to take as many folks with him to hell as possible. What does he use? What are Satan's tactics? What are his falsehoods? Well, Satan uses phony religion. Many people today look at the spectrum of religions, all the way from things that are generically Christian, that have nothing to do with God and are a cult, and everything in between. And they see this wide array of options, and they throw up their hands and say, I don't know what the truth is, so I'm just not going to worry about it. I'll just be an agnostic. And plenty of people out there say, there might be a God, there might not be a God, I don't know. And I'm willing to fly by the seat of my pants and find out on the other side of eternity. And my friends, they're going to wake up to a very rude awakening. They're going to wake up in a place of hell. 
hell because they were deceived by the many phony religions and they did not do the work to find it. Other people are deceived by the rebellion and pride that's been placed in their heart through their sin nature because of Adam's, or Adam's being tripped up by Satan in the Garden of Eden. And in their rebellion and pride, they look at the cross and they thumb their nose at it and they say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Other people are deceived by the glitz and glamour of sin. I think of a man's uh, uh, house I stood inside of, a Spanish man's house I stood inside of, and he had a beer in one hand and a cigarette between the others, and I gave him the gospel and I made it as clear to him as I could. And I got down to the very end and he smirked and he laughed and he said, I would get saved, but that means that I probably have to give up my drinking. I get saved, but it means I probably got to give up my cigarettes. He said, I get saved, but it means I got to give up my party lifestyle. I don't want to have anything to do with your God because I'm having too much fun in my sin. And to him, the glitz and glamour of sin was enough to keep him damned to a place called hell. But sadly today, many folks are headed to hell or on their way to hell because they cannot get past the hypocrisy of so-called Christians. Shame on us if we become a stumbling block to others because of our sin. Satan has been misleading and deceiving human beings and keeping them from the saving knowledge of the cross for thousands of years. The church is on a mission to teach truth. The church is on a mission to build up believers. The church is on a mission to salvage lost souls. But I'm here today to tell you that Satan is on a mission as well. And he has a mission statement. And inside that mission statement, it involves getting up every morning and going about the duty of destroying and killing and taking as many eternal souls to hell as possible with him. Satan hates humanity. Even more than that, he hates those who have been saved. Even more than that, he hates the Christian who actively and aggressively leads people away from falsehoods and and helps people find eternal clarity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Letter C, notice the church's focus. The church's focus. So why did God establish the church? Why did God establish the church? Yes, it was to teach truth. Yes, it was to build up the believers, but the most urgent, the most pressing mission of the church is not the fellowship and fun. It's not the uh, it's not the fellowship and fun that we enjoy in being in a climate controlled building uh, when it's raining outside and knowing that we're dry and we're having fun and we're getting to know other people that look like us and talk like us and act like us and smell like us and behave like us and are trying to raise their kids the way we are. No, 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 that's not the most urgent and pressing mission of the church. Rather, it is the salvaging of the lost from the flames of hell. That is the most urgent and pressing mission of the church. Jesus told the leaders of the church age, right as he was getting ready to ascend into heaven, he looked at those that would go out and plant the churches around the globe. And he said to them, as you're planting those churches, he said to them, go ye into all the world and Preach the gospel. Preach the good news. Preach the death, the burial, the resurrection, the saving grace of Jesus. Preach the gospel to every creature and then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That is supposed to be the urgent plea of the church. One evening on a on an ocean shore, there was a tide that came in. And left thousands of starfish, as far as the eye could see, in both directions on the beach. That little boy 
in his cut-off blue jeans and his bare feet walked out on the shore with a straw hat on. He reached down and he picked up a starfish off the beach and he threw it as far as he could back in the ocean. He picked up another and then another and then another. Sitting on a vacation porch, sitting on the porch of a vacation home owned by a rich man, there sat a gentleman there with just lazily rocking in his, his rocking chair. And he looked at the small boy and he said, what in the world are you doing? He said, well, sir, I'm trying to save the starfish. And the man laughed. He said, young man, you're wasting your time. You'll, you'll never save them all. And he said, well, maybe I can't save them all. But I can make a difference to this one. And I can make a difference to this one. And I can make a difference to this one, and to this one, and to this one. I might not be able to save them all, but I can save these one at a time. I can salvage these one at a time. What can one little church, stuck in one small part of history, in a small town in Connecticut do? Can it make an impact that is felt around the globe? Can it make an impact that will be felt, that will affect all 7 billion plus people alive today? I don't know. But I know it can make a difference in this one's life. And I know it can make a difference in this one's life. And I know it can make a difference in this one's life. And I know it can make a difference in... In, where are you at, Matt? That one's life. These folks that are standing have had their destination changed from hell to heaven because of the light of White Oak Baptist Church. Here's what I want to know this morning. How many of you here today were salvaged? You were saved? Directly or indirectly, because of the witness and outreach of White Oak Baptist Church. If that's you, would you please join these and stand? You were saved because of the witness and outreach of White Oak Baptist Church. Would you please stand? If that's your testimony. We're making a difference, folks. Making a difference. You can be seated. Thank you. Now. Stratford, Connecticut has 60,000 people that live in it. Milford, Orange, Shelton, Trumbull, Bridgeport, New Haven, West Haven, East Haven, North Haven. The greater community at large. Hundreds of thousands of people. Many of them are headed to a destination of hell. And unless we up our game, unless we get serious about the mission of the church, that's where they're going to go. That's where they're going to go. You say, it's the mission of the church? Then that means it's your mission, Pastor. No, it's our mission, White Oak Baptist Church. Yes, it's my mission. It's your mission as well. 
It's your mission to not only understand the truth, but to teach the truth. It's not only your mission to be built up, but to build up. It's not just your mission to have your soul salvaged, but it's your mission to salvage the sinners around us and to see the Word of God taught and put forth and people saved. Not everyone wants to hear it. Not everyone will hear it. But we are to do our part. Now, practically speaking, how can you be about the most urgent of the three missions? Well, the first way you can be about this mission is to be active in inviting everyone you know to church. Everyone you know to church. You say, well, they go to another church. Is it a church or is it a religious institution? Are they really teaching the gospel? If they're not, get them here. Uh, if they're not going to church, stay on them and stay on them and stay on them. Be nice about it. Be tactful about it. But invite everyone you know to church. Here's another one. Tell them the story about how Jesus saved you. You may not know how to take them all the way through the Bible and show them how they can go to heaven. But you can tell them what Jesus did for you. You can say, I was a sinner. And I was on my way to hell. I, I was religious in nature, maybe. And I, I thought I, I thought I was a good person. I, I, I thought, I, I thought I was doing the right things. And one day it was explained to me that Jesus had died on the cross for my sins. And I put my faith in Him and tell them the events about where you were. And that testimony can make such a difference. How else can you be involved? Well, every Tuesday evening and every Saturday morning, White Oak Baptist Church corporately gathers to go out and give the gospel to those that are in need of the gospel to salvage as many sinners as possible. Tuesday evenings, we meet at 6.30. We have a hot meal prepared for you to eat. And then we go out and we follow up on those that visited the church. Sometimes we encourage the discouraged. Other times we go put door hangers on people's doors. Sometimes we knock on doors and we give somebody a gospel track and we ask them about their eternal soul and we have the chance to walk them through the gospel and see them get saved at their door. Every Tuesday at 6.30 we do that. Every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. we do that. I would encourage you to pick a time and come out. You say, Pastor, I'm scared. I don't know what to say or do. And to that I'd say, come out and just be someone's silent partner and watch them do it and be a silent support. And in time, you'll learn the tactics of how to do that. And the last thing I'd say as far as the practical way to be about the mission of the church is to begin to learn how to persuade others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Begin to learn how to do that. It's a process. It takes time. But begin to work hard at that because it is the main calling that God has given us as a church and you as an individual. The mission of the church is simple. It's to teach truth. It's to build up the believers. And it's to salvage sinners. Let me ask you a question this morning. I want you to be very honest with yourself. Are you sitting in the stands observing? Or are you actively running your race and doing your part. Spectators doesn't get the job done. Critics, they don't get the job done either. It's those who are actively involved in carrying out the mission of the church. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. How many here today say, Pastor Lejeune, there was a time and day in my life I put my trust in Jesus Christ to save me. I know that I am heaven bound, not because of my good works, but because Jesus has saved my soul. I have put my faith in Jesus. Here's my hand and testimony of that. Would you just hold your hand up just for a moment for me? You can put your hand down. How many here today would say, Pastor Lejeune, you talked about hell this morning. Boy, I sure don't want to go there, but I'm not sure where I would go if I died. Pastor Lejeune, I want to know 
the Jesus saving grace in my life. I want to know that I will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. Pastor, would you pray for me? I am uncertain of my eternal destination. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up and write back down? Would you just slip your hand up and write back down? I won't call out your name. I won't embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. Is there one? How many here say, Pastor, I am not efficiently, thoroughly, actively doing my part like I ought to to help the church carry out its mission. On some level, I've been a spectator. And Pastor, I need to do my part, pull my weight to see the mission of the church advanced and the kingdom of heaven grown. Pastor, would you please pray for me? Here's my hand. God would help me to do my part. Many hands, many hands. Are there others? Pastor, I need to do my part. I need to do my part. Lord, this morning, I pray that you would give us a fresh perspective of just how horrible hell is. And just, Lord, the volume of people that live around us are heading there. Lord, would you help us to be involved in doing our part. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to fall in love with truth. And, Lord, develop a plan to be built up and to grow. Lord, may White Oak Baptist Church thoroughly and efficiently and effectively carry out the mission that you have laid out for us. Lord, would you help decisions to be made during this invitation time that will alter someone else's eternity, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, Lord, maybe even an enemy. But, God, may we see eternal destinations altered because of the seriousness of the decisions that are made. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed. My friend, you can pray there in the pew. But God, but, but I'll tell you this, I think God sees the seriousness of your decision when you're willing to come and kneel at an altar and tell him, I'm all in, God. I'm all in on this mission, this calling. I'm willing to humble myself. I'm willing to commit to be all in. For you. If you're here today and you've not been saved, Pastor Mike's down front here. He'd like to take the Bible and show you how you can know. If you've been saved but not baptized, our baptismal waters are ready. If you'd like to join our church, we'd love to help you to be able to do that this morning.